Brothers to his left, and he's on his way. 10, 9, 5, 3, cut down! Wonderful try! We have a mole, Jim. Digs like a demented mole there. He just bust through the defence. Just watch this. Good evening and welcome to the Molecast. Good evening. Good evening. Uh, Ireland finished third in the three-horse race. Last week we said it was a satisfactory Six Nations. This week, I don't think we can say the same anymore. Something bad has happened. <laughs> uh, and I also asked you last week to give your marks out of 10 in the uh, patented no half mark scale. I'm giving them two. I, I, think, I think there's cause for giving them one. I gave I, them three. I was quite surprised with how harsh I was giving them seven last week, but and I was wondering, I'm going to be asked the same question, am I going to give one or two? It's it's hard to see how I can not give one. <laughs> like, it was awful. It was a bad game. I was at it. Uh, it was uh, an overpoweringly noisy stadium, even with the roof open. The the Welsh fill the stadium really early compared to Lansdowne Road. Uh, how would Irish people fill Lansdowne Road? And there's singing going on from um, probably about thirty five minutes before kickoff. But even even your journey down, you you were at the twenties match and you got the train from Chester. Yeah. So you got the train from the north of Wales. Yeah, changing a crew traditionally a big or a big railway town. Yeah. Oh, the spotting around crew was amazing. <laughs> Wait until you see some of those locomotives. Um, but as we got down, so you go, you spend most of the time going down through England, then you get to Hereford and you sort of shoot a little bit south west towards Wales. And the last four stations, our train was full, absolutely full to the brim with people standing, like 16 or 17 people bunched in each sort of link part. And then the same amount of people standing and leaning over in the aisle. All the way, aisle is jammed, all the seats taken, obviously. But as we got into each town in Wales... Uh, there were more and more people lined up. And this is an early train. So this was uh, probably between uh, 9.30 and 10.30. So there were people four deep on the platform looking to get onto our train. You know, four hours. They've, it's not a long trip. Like from, from where they were coming, they, the maximum travel time is 45 minutes. And there was like hundreds of people lined up. Drinking? Absolutely shit-faced. <laughs> you know, really early in the morning. But there's a, everyone... Not everyone, but loads of people with face paint. Loads of people wearing red jerseys. They're really early, trying to cram themselves onto a train which had no capacity for it. Um, and the the mood in Wales was actually actually quite nervous outside the stadium. Um, but once they're in the stadium, once they're all together, the the mood is uh, they become become much more confident. And they're just loud. It's an incredibly loud stadium to be in. There was, I just looked it up because there was um, the record attendance at Murrayfield. And because we're Irish, this, I don't think this really registered much, I'd say, on people's consciousness. It was 104,000. It was set on the 1st of March, 1975. Scotland defeated Wales, 12-10. And there were stories of the trains coming up. Like, can you imagine 104,000 people going to Murrayfield? Uh, like just the sheer volume, like say say Murrayfield is say sixty five thousand, say it's seventy thousand with with terracing back in the day. That's another half the capacity of the stadium. 
that ended up getting in there. But all those people had to come up. So this this was at the height of, like this is the, the, the middle of Wales golden era. And the stories told of people coming up in the train, like the train was jammed coming up from Wales to Scotland. And not just like the train, every train. Like there, <laughs> every train for days to get that many people up. And there's, there's just a place in the public consciousness that, like Irish rugby doesn't have. So we, you, you go back to the discussion about the people's game, and I think if you see what rugby is like in Wales... Oh, absolutely. You say to yourself, I, nah. I always Ireland's. thought that the people's game thing was uh, as on provocateur stuff from uh, from Frano. Yeah. Um, and there's no doubt that people in Ireland get behind the team in the Six Nations when they're winning. <laughs> but uh, the you just see how people, they do seem to come from... Um, like every corner of Wales is is rugby country, and it was the atmosphere there was pretty special. Uh, it doesn't come across on television. I think there's a, a sort of you might know about this, like a sort of a broadcasting limit that they put on sound. Like they don't just go, you know, the Ireland's call sounded basically about the same as um, as the Welsh national anthem, Land of Our Fathers. But like was. the of our fathers was about like eight times as loud. Um, yeah, I like that description of the train. It sounded like a Philip Larkin poem. Um, we should also say congratulations to Wales, deserved winners of the Six Nations the best, and the Grand Slam. Yeah, and absolutely. Particularly of that match where they were better than us oh, in every single position. Of us. Um, tell me briefly your thoughts about uh, keeping the roof open or closed, having been at the, in the stadium. Yeah. Like our, it was our our seats were under. They were on the first tier, uh, so, and just about two rows back from the underhang. So I didn't get wet at all, really, apart from before and after. Uh, it was noticeable in the concourse how windy it was, and you could see as as I was in there quite early to see the the first game, the French Italian game, and as people as that game ended, people coming in were drenched. Uh, but in my opinion, leaving the roof open uh, as opposed to getting it closed was a negligible factor. Uh, I, th- I think Wales would have beaten us if the roof was closed. Um, and I also think that it, it would have been a stick used to beat Joe Schmidt either way, given the result. You know, if he had opted to keep it closed and we'd lost his head, Gatland has him under his thumb. Why would you just go along with what the home coach wants when you have the option not to do it? He went against what Gatland wanted. And Gatland, unless it was an extremely, uh, extremely clinically played reverse psychology, I think Gatland did want the roof closed and have that stadium absolutely popping. So I, I think it's just a stick used to beat Joe Schmidt because at the moment there's a lot of Irish rugby people who want to hit Joe Stick, Joe Stick over the Schmidt. <laughs> they want to hit him with a Schmidt. You know, it, to me, it was roof closed, roof open. That Welsh team, that Irish team, the way they played, weren't going to beat that Welsh team the way they played. Yeah, um, I, I would be very much of the same opinion that either way, you're both playing in the same conditions. Um, and we play, like you, you mentioned to me before, we play all other games outdoors. Yeah, we play all our, we all play all our other games outdoors. You know, there's no advantage to us deciding once every two years to play indoors. We don't train indoors, we don't play indoors. Um, 
Okay, so it wasn't the roof being open. Then what do you think it was? Why did all the Irish players suddenly have tits for hands? I I thought conditioning. Suddenly? <laughs> <laughs> I thought conditioning. I thought there was... Um, we, we were discussing in, in the car beforehand about... Uh, I went on a half time to look at the odds and because I wanted to see what the England match was. England were 108, so like, say, 12, 13 to 1 on. And I was there going, uh, it's not it's not long enough, it's not short enough. Either way, I'll leave it. Wales were 1.17. So Wales were at 16 nil up at home, having blitzed us, were still longer odds than England were to beat Scotland. And like, <laughs> half the match is still left. You can sort of understand, given the fact then that England went 31 nil up and had put like 60 points on the Scots uh, in, in Twickenham not so long ago. Mm. But I couldn't, I couldn't get over what people were seeing. Uh, so the things that did it for me, the first kickoff when Stocktail caught it with pretty much five metres to play with and got bundled into touch still, and not up in the air, like, you know, he had two feet planted and he got bundled into touch. That was one I felt that they were having to put in a tackle and a jackal, and it was taking us four guys to to clean out a rook. Uh, they were just so much stronger than we were, and we were quickly running out of men. And the the nail in the coffin was Hadley Parks catching Stockdale from behind. When when Stockdale got clear of Davies and got into a stride, I was there going, "Geez, we're doing great to be seven all here." I I had it. I had him under the sticks without getting a hand laid on, and we're not talking about a guy getting a fingertip to him and like clipping his heel and putting them off balance enough. He got two arms around him. Hadley Parks. It's an like, amazing tackle. Hadley Parks is not renowned as a great athlete. He's like he's a big, solid, clever first center who like does a lot of things right. And I was there and like Jacob Stockdale is a shark. He's a predator of a try score. And he was in full stride and he had nothing in front of him. And I was there going, these guys are miles fitter than we are. If Hadley Parks can catch Jacob Stockdale from behind, they are like at 120 to our 100, or we're at 80 to their 100, whatever. If they're miles fitter, why do they all suck so much during the rest of the season for their teams? Or why are our players routinely better than them throughout the rest of the season? That's a really good question. And for me, Josh Navidi's the most interesting guy. I watched Josh Navidi play for... If you've watched the Pro 12 in any amount for the national numbers. You know Josh Navidi, because he plays loads for Cardiff, and he's good. And I've watched him play for Cardiff over the last decade, or whatever it is that he's been and playing. And we always notice that he's good. And sort of think, Jesus, like, he's actually better than Sam Warburton for Cardiff, but that's just because Warby was dreadful for Cardiff and was an absolute worldie when he played for Wales. So reconcile that. But you also sort of go, ah, like Sean O'Brien versus Josh Navidi, I know who I'd be backing. Whereas jo- like Josh Navidi was brilliant on Saturday. So... To go back to your question, pure Warren Ball is, you probably go back to Wasps, and you go back to Wasps peaking physically at the right time with Craig White as their as their head of strength and conditioning, and just being so physical and so aggressive and so much fitter at the business end of the season, and then doing it the following year and sort of like seeding the first half of the season. Like you see Wasps in eighth or ninth, and you go, they know that they can't be fit enough to play like Munster. I'm, try, I'm trying to think the season was. Munster got beat by Clarnethley in a quarterfinals of a Heineken Cup match. That was like ten, 10 years ago? 6 7. 6 7. Yeah. 
And they started off like they annihilated Leinster early into the season. And they looked they looked awesome. And you're just sort of going, how do you, are they going to be able to sustain that all season? Is anybody able to sustain that all season? That sort of, like, do you peak too early? So Wales looked like they had decided they were going to peak for the Six Nations as a team. Like, Team Wales was going in, forget about what the regions were doing. We've got this many good players in this many positions. And... You know, like Moriarty's gone back to the Dragons, but like he's on a central contract to bring him back. He's he's not playing for the Dragons because like the money is better and that sort of stuff, or maybe the money's as good in Worcester or Gloucester, wherever he was. But it's a concerted decision for Team Wales, and Gatland went out of his way to get Stridgen. So Stridgen, and I, I was really interested in Stridgen because Stridgen was at Wasps and he was a he was a Commonwealth uh, wrestler, and he's not that old. He's he's still in his thirties. He's a Commonwealth wrestler and he got his first strength and conditioning gig in Wasps uh, when Gaddy was there and he wouldn't have been the head guy. And he was working with Wales in the 2015 World Cup at the same stage that he was down in Toulon when Toulon won the three uh, European champions. Cups, yeah, European and he's Cups. the guy, Paul Stridgen, who's with the Lions. And he's the guy with the Lions. And he's the sort of guy, like I was chatting about him last summer, he, like, he looks like hyperactive. He looks like the sort of bloke who can only work for himself. Like he just, he couldn't, he couldn't work in an organisation because he's, he's too much energy and he's too unconventional. And like he, he couldn't be waiting around till nine o'clock. Like he'd just be, like it's not going to work for him. And I was looking for him on the WRU website. I was looking to see who their head of conditioning was, and I couldn't find him. So it wouldn't surprise me that he's actually contracted a service to the WRU. Now, the way Wales Online refer to it is that he's he joined full-time. But like, does that mean he's joined full-time, like he's contracting, like he's, he's given a certain amount of hours to he, the Welsh? Yeah, or, or, or WRU giving him a pension, like... Yo, I don't see that happening. I think he's... Is he strength and conditioning guys? He's the yeah. head of physical performance. And then they have two guys who are assistant strength and conditioning guys. And the fact that he's worked with Gatlin before, the fact that Wales were able to negotiate with Bujalal to get him released for the 2015 World Cup um, and what he stayed on in Toulon. And then he joined Wales full-time in 2017. Um, like Gatlin puts a huge premium on physical conditioning at the right time of the season. And he has done since, as you said, he has done... Since Wasps. Forever. Like, yeah. Like Craig White was, was in the IRFU with him and went over to Wasps with him because Gaddy recognised how good this guy mm. was. And that Welsh side, the, the thing that has stood out, they've, they, they have scored some good tries. Like the try that Hadley Park scored in the first minute, that was an absolute artist's kick from uh, Anscombe. Mm. A beautifully deft little nudge, which has great potential to go wrong. Like on a rainy day, all it takes is the ball to fall one centimeter too far to the side of his foot, and he's just shanked it. You know, he might even miss the ball. But he played this beautiful little dancer's kick over the top. Parks hit it in stride, ball at, ball at eye level, and it was magnificent. But the story of Wales's uh, title win has been that they have been able to defend, like. Um, I don't know what the most appropriate thing is. Their defence has been ferocious when it needed to be. They haven't been the most. Like I was, I sort of, I was curious if they, if they, if they were the most effective, uh, effective defence in in the last ten years of the Six Nations, and they're not. You know, they conceded, I think, either six or seven tries this year, fifty nine points or something like sixty five points. Whereas Ireland, in under Schmidt's first two, conceded four tries in each in each tournament, 2014, 2015. And uh, Gatlin's first uh, 
sort of back-to-back 12 and 13. Those Welsh teams only conceded three tries each in a championship. You know, some, like rugby was slightly different back then, but those are phenomenally low try amounts to score. So this Welsh team, whilst defence has been ferocious, it wasn't always... It was ferocious when it needed to be. They did concede points and they conceded tries. They conceded fewer tries and fewer points than anybody else in it. Uh, and it's what won them the, the tournament. But, you know, they're not... It's it's not an all-time great defence is basically what I'm trying to say, the long way of it. Um, like Ireland last year, they won a lot of games narrowly and uh, won a game against a terrible France team that they could very well have lost in the first game in bad conditions in Paris. A lot of similarities in that way. Well, they won, they won... They and then blew out the doors in the last game Two as well. tough games uh, on paper. Their two toughest games were going to be at, at home against England yeah. and against Ireland. And in, in both games, neither of the visiting sides got a losing bonus point. The way, yeah, the way, the way the fixtures... or Sorry, the way Irish rugby has developed, it means that Wales play the two hardest teams at home in an odd year. So while you've got three away matches, it's a bit. It's the way that we play England and France at home in the same year. Um, if Wales were not historically good, were Ireland historically bad? I mean, that's the worst performance I can think of since um, we were look. We were, we were trying to count, find, find a nil, and we got back to the sixty nil uh, against New Zealand. In the Six Nations, we didn't get a nil, so I don't know why I'm comparing these stats. But it was nineteen ninety against England. Um, but what seems to be the major problem with Ireland going from go, uh, playing the two good teams in this tournament and getting badly beaten by both of them? Yeah, well, I think the the major thing has been carrying uh, both halfbacks being out of form. One, uh, you could possibly deal with carrying two of them at the same time has meant that everything, you can't attack out everything it has to go through 9 or 10 or off 9 or 10 um, and if it gets to 10 it has to go through 9 both halfbacks have been out of form Conor Murray's not fully fit by any stretch of the imagination Sexton's having a, a, just a bad dip in form um, but you were saying he played well against France he did play well against France but he didn't play well against England he didn't play great against Italy um, but he did play well against England I think in general his form has been more up and down, Dan Murray's, who I think has been dreadful for the entire Six Nations. Um, we've also we've had a lot of changes, intentional and otherwise. I think when Marmion came on, it was the 36th player that Schmidt has used over five games. So he's done some things which he intended to do, but he's been put in a really tough spot by his the two first two names on the team sheet for him have been badly out of form um and it's put him in a tough spot because his the people he'd like to have given time to in that lapse of form from them um Kieran Marmion and Joey Carber you have missed a lot of the championship through injury so he's down to selecting people he doesn't necessarily want to select because he's you know, their third choice for him. And that's his option between picking a guy who is Ireland's greatest ever out half or uh, a guy on, you know, coming into coming into his first Irish training squad or picking 
uh, you know, dropping Ireland's greatest ever scrum half to pick a guy who he probably has sees as his fourth choice scrum half in John Cooney. I think there was there was more than a hint of mischief making with Steve Hansen's comment about being the, the difference between being the hunted and the hunter. But I think psychologically the Irish team has buckled, struggled with finding a focus. Um, and this is just instinct. Like I've, I've nothing to hang that on. I can't, like I can't point to having seen their trainings or having seen their matches. But with finding a focus, having beat New Zealand, obviously they have the World Cup coming up. So <laughs> the English match, you could sort of go as a blip. When you see the first match and the last match being as bad and you go, is this just like a long-running train crash? Like, what's what's he going to change? I think there's been the selection in the first match where he put Henshaw at fullback and I immediately texted you guys and said, he's going to try to win the World Cup. He's going to pick daringly for Joe Schmidt in the hope of getting all his best players on the pitch because Robert was available for that match, having like, mm. stunk out the ground the previous week against Scarlets uh, for an Enster. So you can sort of argue on form. And he was probably unlucky in that Robert got injured. Not Robert, Rob Henshaw got injured. Um, I missed the rest of the tournament. So he was he was never an option again. So Joe never had the opportunity to double down on Henshaw. Um, and I think you you were you were saying that there was there's been no progress selection wise as yeah like you know so it's a sort of the 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 killer 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 has been the progress yeah killer has been the progress yeah um, and Jack Conan they've they've been sort of and like and Cardi's taken his Cardi's done well Dan has uh, done Larmer's, well Larmer's done better it was it was I really noticed and look we can talk about the referee if he wants but Ireland got two scrum penalties. Um, one of the five metres, one in the, the middle of the pitch when Quinn Roo was on. By, we drifted through their scrum. And when Ty Byrne was on, we gave away four. And I was there going, ooh, and I really wanted Ty to play. Yeah, well, really we all did. I was really happy when he did. We all but did. But it's, it's, it's just one of those reminders. So, like, you can't... By that stage, the front five was completely different and the match was at a completely different stage. But it, it was a bit of a reminder that, as with Robbie Henshaw chasing around the backfield like international rugby is so demanding like it's it's the top level and any anywhere like any any part that you can be found out oh probably yeah will, you probably will be found it's out. like water getting into a flat roof yeah. the water is just gonna stay there you know and it'll find where the gap is i want to go back to, uh, i mean the thing i, I talk about roofs the, the, let's, let's, let's concentrate <laughs> on insulated. The thing I rooms. thought about was that we had made no progress in terms of answering any questions, and we come out of the thing with more questions because we, I know, I know, we notwithstanding the injuries, but there were opportunities before the injuries happened. We didn't start Cooney in any games. We didn't start Carberry in any games. We only started Alarm in one game because uh, Rob Carney pulled out, and Larmer for all the perceived criticism, he should have been given a chance as the second choice, number 15, when if he wasn't going to pick Rob Carney in the first game. And I know people have said he's dodgy under the high ball. I don't think competing for the high ball was the problem for any of the fullbacks, for Robbie Henshaw. It was not knowing where to be 
in the first place was the problem. Yeah, true. But in another game, like Larmer did struggle against Argentina under the high ball. And maybe and against Toulouse with his positioning. Yeah, so maybe if England had seen Larmer at fullback, they just would have said, Grant, we've got really good chasers in Johnny May. We've got three Jack chicken Nulls. options. We're just going to put high ball after high ball on this fella. Make, you know, the ifs and buts are candy and nuts. Halloween would be Christmas forever, as the saying goes. I think there was, there's, there seemed to be an indecipherable logic to, to the selection, given that the World Cup is the start of next season. So Wales ramped up to this, yeah. and they're going to ramp up again. Right. Because, no, Wales. Wales yeah. ramped up to this, and they're going to ramp up again because none of their players have anything left to play for. Whereas all our players have some, well, nearly all our players are still competing in European competition. Yeah, so they can actually find some form again. Their problem is form. The problem isn't selection as much as it is form. I'm just trying to decipher which players get picked on form and which players get a buy. Yeah, well, Johnny Sexton gets a buy and Conor yeah, Murray gets a buy. That's a good question. But then you go, Rob Carney gets a buy, Sean O'Brien gets a buy, and. Well, Rob didn't play badly against Wales. No, he didn't, but he didn't. No, he, he, genuinely he didn't. Yeah, but he didn't offer any attack. He didn't. He doesn't offer the same attack and threat that Jordan Larmer does. Now, at the same stage, you can go. The match against France was a miles better example for Jordan Larmer, like a miles looser match. Yeah, where we had all the ball. Where we had all the, the ball to to demonstrate what he can do, and he did demonstrate what he can do. He looked brilliant. Yeah, he <laughs> um, and like Shawnee, oh, man, I was thinking, Jesus. Like, you should pick Scott Penny just now. Just like, <laughs> like Scott, Scott Penny's got 10 or 11 years left ahead of him. Like Shawnee has... Yeah, is, this is, is Sean. It was a really is, sad sight to see him going off uh, because he looked finished. Uh, and like I've, I've been boring about this and saying that he shouldn't start games, that he should be the back row sub and that's the ideal position for him. Um, but I was hoping that he could... It, that would be a game which would get his competitive juices flowing and that if, he, if you know, he was going to produce a Sean O'Brien-type performance, it would be in that sort of game. And he was uh, he just wasn't able to, to play at the, at the pace of the game for much of it. You know, it's really disappointing from him and for him. You know, and it, it, looked, uh, it looked sort of like the end of his international career. And it's probably not because he'll, he'll be brought to the World Cup... Um, he might even start matches, but it's it's kind of difficult seeing him. Like, what argument is there for him to recover form? Like, since like he doesn't play enough rugby, now maybe he'll play his way back into it. You'd really hope maybe the guys have a conditioning program that will ramp them up for October. But genuine, like, do I mean would you bring Scott Penny to the World Cup ahead of Sean O'Brien? Like, I don't. I'd be too conservative to do that, but. When you look... Bring Jack Conan ahead of Sean O'Brien. I would. That's the question, though. I would, yeah. Based on based on the way they've played this season, last season, yeah. Like, yeah. It's not even a decision. I mean, the, sorry, I'm working on the assumption that like that's the place that's up for grabs. That's the, yeah, that's Josh, the, Josh the, the, and, the, the second choice. Josh and Levy eight. would be going and... Well, with Levy's one at Levy, and I, I 
like Levy's reputation was already sky high, but it's got even higher from not playing in that absolute shit show of a championship. Yeah. You know, but he's he's due back to play for Leinster against Edinburgh at the weekend. Everyone is like it's it's like he's the second coming of Jesus Christ. Oh, Levy's back. Well yeah, just so just to go back to that, the the thing I meant by the the logic of selection is that there are certain places that you do get you do insulate yourself from if he's fit he gets picked. Yeah. But he's sort of having gone through this uh, extremely successful season peaking uh, with the victory in New Zealand there's, it seems like there's too many places set in stone and there's not enough people who can be knocked out on form yeah it's a good it's a good yeah. point because he has picked this wide range of guys like you know we've had three loose heads three hookers three tight heads six second rows play six back rows three uh scrum halves three out halves only three centers um and then i think f- five or six back three larmer conway carney stockdale earls five uh so there's been a lot of there's been a lot of people drafted in but most of these people have been drafted in either as a sub or as because of an injury issue and uh, and you're saying that there's maybe too many people set in stone i think that's what happens to a team when they come uh, when they come towards the World Cup is that you should know what your best team is. Uh, as I said before, the big problem is that his, there's certain players not performing and that the guys who, who he would have fancied to be their backups aren't available. Um, you know, when, when guys have come in that, you know, people are excited to see play. People are excited about seeing Robbie Henshaw play 15. A lot of people... So the Irish rugby fans on Twitter element are going, this is really exciting. I was excited to see it. Yeah, I was excited as well. Excited but disappointed. Uh, but then when it doesn't happen, nobody goes, oh, I was calling, or very very few people go, oh, I was really looking forward to that and I thought it was going to work and it didn't. Most people actually just started saying, what was he thinking doing this and what was he thinking doing that? Um which is an issue. Like We were all very keen to see Tyg Byrne play. Tyg started, you know, I think he had a, Turnover was in the first 10 minutes, an absolutely artful turnover. And then he was fucking nowhere for the, for the rest of. And this is a guy who has had, you know, three, two and a half great seasons in a row playing at a club level. Like, great, you know, best player in the league. He's Munster's best player this season. And it was a big game. And Jesus, like, he, he like he's not the only one. You know, but people were looking for him and going, why isn't Schmidt? There was I, was, I was again, I was looking for him. Yeah. So like we say people like me. No, I'm, I'm talking generally about people who don't exist. <laughs> uh, there's, there was a lot of, like, there was a bit of the beginning of an internet fury. What does he have to do to get selected? And then he does get selected. And, you know, he's part of one of Ireland's fucking worst performances in the last six years. I'm not blaming Ty Byrne for that, but I'm saying that there's this malaise which is, I, I can't put my finger on what's causing it. Like, I know with, with Murray, my strong impression is that he's nowhere near 100% physically. So you were showing a picture of his arm. That, I think that, that, that doesn't come across, but there's a picture of him going to congratulate Johnny Sexton after the French match, and it's his left arm. And yeah, it, and it looks tiny compared to yeah. his right arm. You know, and he had this nerve injury in his neck, and he had a similar nerve injury in his neck in 2017, uh, and this this time he he didn't want to disclose it to the media, 
it came out when he when he was sort of coming back. He said what it was, and he's lost. He, he seems to have lost like loads of size and loads of physicality. And I just don't think he's he's a hundred percent physically now. From my perspective, the good point of it is that he's back playing rugby. He's been cleared to play, and he's been selected to play. And I think it's something he's going to work through and improve. So I understand entirely Joe Schmidt's uh, selection policy and going. This isn't my big tournament this year. Um, and it, I don't mind if we don't win it. But I, I need, I, I I still, need to I, get the guy ready yeah. for the World Cup. I still think in terms of the selection and the, the question of uh, places being set in stone, I think there's, it's it's a really interesting argument. Uh, I think of it in terms of like, say, in a sport where it's much more measurable how what form is, like you don't drop your best batsman because he has three or four or five bad games in a row in cricket. Mm-hmm. You just stick with him because you know ultimately over like his average literally says that he's better than everyone else. So you mm-hmm. stick with him. And there are a lot of players like that in the Irish team. And I think maybe at the moment we're struggling for the first time of ever actually having this much depth and knowing how to balance out uh, having having this much depth of talent, faith versus form. Yeah, because yeah. but the, but at the same time, I still think there were opportunities where, like, okay, Tyg Byrne had a bad game there, and maybe you know, in his like second ever start for Ireland, he 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 was way off the pace. He played the full game the night before Italy for Munster. Like he should have played against Italy. He, he really should have. And I think John Cooney or Jordan Armour should have started that game as well. If there are just opportunities to to test out the depth mm-hmm. in, in non-panic situations, I think they were missed. Would be my thing. Well, anyway, you know, Conan was supposed to play against Italy and got it, injured, and Jordy Murphy started playing. You know, Carby was supposed to play against Italy and got injured. You know, you have to take those things into account. They may be counteractive to your argument, but they're just facts. You know. Nonetheless, Ireland are it's not the um it's not the big tournament this year like you said. L- let's talk about uh, Angus Gardner. I said w- I looked him up last week and said is how's he going to affect the game? Um a friend of mine texted me at half time and he said um and he's a he he was living in Australia for a long time so he said the words sir was echoing around the Irish pub where he watched it. Um and I said ah, the, the ref's not the reason we're losing we're shite. But he wasn't very good either. Yeah, I was at it and I was, I, I thought it was like th- everything was going against us. Uh, but I didn't have the best view in the house when I was there. Um, it just felt like, oh, Jesus, we are giving away. Like we're getting pain for this and pain for that. And, and when you saw the big screen again, you go, oh, that is fucking harsh, you know? So then when I came back, uh, I watched the match again late last night. And instead of, instead of going, oh, you know, he was right. I said, like, oh, holy fuck, we didn't get a single call. He was hard on us and very easy on Wales. You know, it's not that they like, we got fucking beaten out the gate. But we did concede one try and six kicked penalties. You know, so it had an effect. We, we were chatting after the Aussie tour when Rory Best didn't go. So our, our captains were... Omani and Sexton. So, like, Jesus, like Sexton's possibly the worst man in the world at referees. And Omani is, he's got better. 
think he's a bit. He's not as good as Bestie. He's he's, but Alwyn Jones dominated this tournament. He is the player of the tournament for me. By head and shoulders, he was so influential on referees. Um, so y- y- you've got that. You're playing against an opposition captain like that. You're playing in front of a, a raucous home crowd. Um, like it's a coronation. Yeah. But that's what it was. It, it felt in, like we were functionaries in a coronation. In a coronation opposition. environment um, with massive noise. And we sort of alluded to that to last week, but you, you can miss side of just like how influential that is. Like why do home teams do much better in referee contests than away teams? And you're going, well, it's because you get decisions. <laughs> like a lot of... And then there was our discipline was poor. And a lot of stuff like was very like I thought the James Ryan line up penalty was a very, very technical infringement. Like yeah, I've, up I've the middle. an issue with that as well. And I'll just say why what it is. In that the referee gave the uh, Welsh lads the line. He literally pointed to the ground, stood in front of their loose head, gave them the line. Now when his back was turned, they moved off the line and they came towards it. And he blew the whistle and said Listen, I'm only going to have this conversation once. Stay on your line. So at that stage, the game had been dead for about 30 seconds. So he'd had a conversation with Wales after they've already disobeyed him. And he told them, this is a warning. Ireland then took the middle of the line with James Ryan moving down the middle of the line. And it's a free kick. They didn't, kick throw, they didn't throw to him. No, they didn't throw to him. He's more or less inconsequential. But my point is that it had been a conversation with Wales. It was a free kick against Ireland. Similar incident occurred with Alan Wynne-Jones lying on the wrong side, 15 metres in front of the French sticks. He said, he's trapped, it's a scrum to Ireland. CJ Standard did the same thing later in the game. It's a penalty to Wales. I, was looking at, I, looked, see, I disagree with you there because I looked at CJ's body position when he made that tackle in the, when I rewatched the match and I was there thinking... Oh, CJ, that's terrible. So it's a penalty against... Alan Wynne-Jones Jones. didn't make it any attempt to get out of the way. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's a penalty both ways. You know, but if you've made the precedent that, oh, if you're trapped once in an onside position and somebody's lying on top of you, that's only a scrum, then we're entitled to feel hard done by. You've made your, you've made your bed, now line it. You know, Keen Healy's hand and knee went down the ground for roughly one second each in a scrum, which he got back up quickly and was trying to scrummage. That was a penalty against Ireland in a scrum which was still live. Whereas when there were a number of scrums going down on, on Welsh ball, which went down, Wales went down first and it was a reset. It's hard when you look at those through Irish eyes, admittedly, not to feel a bit fucking aggrieved. I thought he missed a knock-on at the, at a five-minute scrum in the first half by Davies, and I thought that Beard grabbed Murray in a mall before Murray had the ball, uh, which resulted in Murray throwing a weird sort of yeah, scraggy pass. pass yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah it wasn't sort of rotating like, backwards. So I thought those two, I thought, oh man, like how do you not see that? But then I thought a lot of the penalties, like CJ gave one for offside, Ty gave one for offside. And they're both offside. Them, I equate them to American football, where the lads just came off the line through eagerness and discipline and then went back and did nothing and still got penalised. And you're just thinking to yourself, oh, we're killing. Yeah, ourselves. we work, we killed ourselves as well. You know, and that's why, like, when you try to mark it out of ten, you just think to yourself, "Oh, there like, were there were two marks down. That took it immediately down from a very high ten to an eight. <laughs> like, there's nothing good eight here. out of hundred, was it? You know, and I'd, <laughs> I'd also say as well that you know when it finished up on eleven penalties a beach, we got five penalties after seventy-two minutes. I call that know. the Father Richard. Yeah, that's an oblique reference there. For yeah, that was very, <laughs> very oblique. You know, it's it's a way of the referee essentially covering his tracks 
going, oh, it's, you know, I gave penalties against both sides. That was all fucking garbage time. Um, that's all sort of sour grapesy. We were beaten out the gate. It didn't have the defining effect on the game. But I think it's to pretend that like I'm above commenting on referees when a <laughs> big enough impact in the match. I'm not decisive, but it certainly had an impact. I think that's sort of that's stupid and pointless. <laughs> you know, it, it happened. It had an it had an effect. It's like knock ons had an effect. You know, it's not something as well that I've only spoken about once, or because Ireland lost. Like we put the wood on France last week, and I was giving out stink about the refereeing in that game and in throughout the tournament. I feel that I haven't seen a Six Nations as poorly refereed uh, in my entire sort of rugby cognizant life. Uh, Alain Roland has has taken over. I think he's um, selected people on fitness scores rather than fitness scores and bidability rather than on their actual uh, ability, proven ability as a ref. Uh, we've seen good refs not eased out or anything, just dropped. Like JP Doyle has been dropped from the international rotation. I think he's one of the best refs in the world. Uh, and we've got guys who are young, very fit, and you know make shit decisions all over the pitch. And they've been refereeing the Six Nations, especially the Southern Hemisphere guys, have been refereeing the Six Nations turgidly this year. I think that yeah. as soon as he can, he's going to get rid of Poit and Garces. I think that the French have their own sort of inter... Like, Joe Jutke is still involved in the in the refereeing board. And I think that the, the French referees are generally the best referees in yeah. the world. Yeah. Uh, but he's... I think Roland is... I can't see him... The way that the way that refereeing his his refereeing era has begun, I can't see him sort of sticking with those guys too much longer. And I think that the the standard of refereeing rugby is a difficult game to referee. I have to say that. But the standard of refereeing, I don't know what's going to be penalised now and what's not going to be penalised. I generally have the suspicion that it's massively going to favour the team with the ball, whether or not they're fucking leaping over the top and sealing things off, whether they're running around the side to take out jacklers. Um, it's going to favour them. And it's, it's sort of pissing me off. Yeah, I thought that the Southern Hemisphere guys in particular favoured... There's a huge amount of f- like sort of cheap shot and f- extra physicality that they just let run. And um, I, I never liked Roland as a referee. And obviously in Ireland, he, he got sort of plumos a lot because he, he was an Irish guy and he was getting high-profile matches. Miles preferred Alan Lewis as a contemporary, but Louis sort of got eased out. Um, I thought Roland only ever refereed the game for himself, um, and uh, yeah, I think that that description as, as biddable is uh, an interesting choice of word. What do you mean by biddable? The, you know, it's c- that they will do. They will referee how they're instructed to referee, rather than refereeing. Like there's laws of the game available for everybody to read. There seems to be a set of interpretations which are only available to a cognoscenti, and I don't understand why they're not released as part of a sort of a Six Nations information pack to the journalists so they could write down what how referees are going to referee things. Well, my favourite referees are Poit and Wayne Burns, and at one stage I wouldn't have said that, but I think they've matured really well as referees. And I like Nigel Owens, and I understand that, like you know, from a breakdown point of view, 
Yeah, you know, like there are loads of the games in there. Nigel's loves the game, but like he does referee some magnificent spectacles. I think not, so Nigel they're works they're... really well if you're not involved. If you're in neutral, yeah, you know, and and you're watching the game, Nigel lets a lot of things go. If you're involved, and I mean in the sort of stakeholder involved, that you might be supporting one of the teams, you're going. Jesus, like this guy's just refereeing on some momentum in his head, not the laws of the game. But he also is, he comes across so well. He's such a likable person. And he's has refereed so many games that we've all enjoyed watching that, like, it's it's hard to be super harsh on, on Nigel. Oh, yeah, he's brilliant. Yeah. Like his communication with the players is, is the best. But I feel that the, uh, I feel that has been a, a really really badly refereed Six Nations and has taken away from my enjoyment of it throughout the game. It usually feels like um, the real world season starts when the uh, rugby championship, formerly the Tri-Nations, begins again and the New Zealanders are playing some new crop of fellas who are even scarier than the ones before and and the referees are playing a new set of laws and that's going to happen before the World Cup. So... I have no idea what it's going to be refereed like in the World Cup. No, nope. doesn't seem like the thing that and it, it, we we discussed briefly last week, but it 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 just boggles my mind. Is the touch judges not being instructed to marshal the offside line for defenses in an era where they're worried about too many, I don't know, high big hits, and it's just it's shutting down all the space. Like you see some plays where it's literally like. Lads are just tossing a hot potato across three, you know, three meters apart before there's another another mall. Like I have the match program from the game in front of me, and there are nine match officials listed. There's referee Angus Gardner, AR one Ben O'Keefe, AR two Carl Dixon, AR three Gwyn Morris, AR four Ben Breakspear, AR five Tony Pratt, TMO Marius Junker, TK Red Shoes, CC Sean Gallagher. Like there are nine referees involved in an international match of that and yet every rugby fan is complaining about refereeing the offside line correctly from breakdowns and it seems like nobody has taken responsibility for it the ref can't take responsibility for every for every breakdown for every high mouth foot well the mad thing is in in this sport um the touch judges are like largely not doing anything. Like they're largely watching the touchline and they're looking out for foul play, but they're not. They're, I mean, they should be standing on the on yeah. the on the offside. Should line be marching at, offside. They yeah. should be, they should be on. They should be on the highmost foot of each rock, the defending highmost foot yeah. of each rock. That should be their remit. And the easiest way to do it is just give two penalties in the first five minutes against either team. I mean, and then you just set down a marker and go, if you do it again, lads, I'll give you another penalty. Yeah. So, uh, but and this isn't this isn't an Ireland-Wales comment. This is a, the entire championship. You know, it's not close to the back of the rock. It's not halfway up the rock. It's behind the highmost foot. It's not on line with the highmost foot. It's behind the highmost foot. Behind the last part of the rock is where yeah. you have to start. And it makes attacking better as well. The cloud didn't like that. <laughs> Referee blows for half time. Anyway, let's move on to one of the more remarkable games that we've ever seen. France Italy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, someone didn't learn his lessons from Freddie Burns anyway this year. <laughs> <laughs> um, it should have been one of the most remarkable games of all time, but instead, uh, just like the end of the the tour in New Zealand for the Lions, it ends up with this sort of weird, damp squib draw that like satisfies nobody. A curiosity rather than an epic. And... I'm sort of at the point where I now think draws should be eliminated from rugby because they're completely fucking useless and they should just play 10 minutes of overtime. Just go straight to drop kicks. Or straight to drop kicks, also highly entertaining. Uh, Scotland were 31-0 down, then got up to 38-31 and then obviously conceded a try under their sticks because they're Scotland. They still never... Yeah, it's a super harsh verdict on Scotland, but I, I can't help... It's not just the kernel of truth, and a kernel means a small nugget at the side of a blossoming bloom of truth. It is actually most... Most of it is just the truth. Scotland did so, so well to take advantage of England's uh, overconfidence and belief that they'd won the game. They roared back into form. They took control of momentum. They played some exquisite attacking rugby. They were fitter. They tackled better. You know, and they did everything they needed to win the game, except they don't really know how to win games. You know, Scotland, they finished with a huge upswing, which has had the sting taken out of it because they conceded and they only got a draw from a game in which they'd remarkably forged a position to win. And they also can look back on the Six Nations in which they had three home fixtures and came away with one win from five games. Like that, they started the tournament ranked seventh in the world. I think France were ninth. They had the chance to go over to France and lay down a marker. And they got bonus pointed in the middle weekend against a France team who got fucking annihilated by England in Twickenham and who got rolled over by Ireland and Dublin either yeah. side of that. So it's been one of those, for everyone bar Wales, it has been an extremely unsatisfactory tournament. A tournament which has had brutal failures. England started with, I think, their best Six Nations uh, performance since they beat Ireland in, in the Grand Slam decider in 2003. Like an unbelievably good they won the Grand Slam since then. Do you think it was better than... Oh, jeez. Do you think it was that good? I mean, it was, it was yeah. comprehensive. Yeah, they, like We were the second-rated team in the world. Yeah, to just get come a bonus off point and to stop us getting a bonus point. Whipped yeah. us stupid in front of our home fans. Amazing performance. Then they went out and annihilated France. Like, what score was that? 44-5, 41-5, something huge. And then they crumbled in the last 12 minutes against Wales. They, uh, now, like, we didn't even, we crumbled in the first, like, fucking minute, <laughs> you know. But they rebuilt, their, they rebuilt their momentum with a super performance against Italy. Now, Italy are shit. They're easy beats. But the way England played was exhilarating. And they started in the same manner. Like, their first half against Scotland, like, the first 31 minutes, 31-0. And it was really impressive. And yet, then, then they have just had a historically bad second half barely rescued at the last moment in the game. So they not only did they lose, spoil their momentum from their first two great performances, they also spoil their momentum from their recalibration. They have, they can look back at that and go, oh, we beat Ireland, you're gone. And then you got beaten by Wales. And then we came back against it. And then you fucking almost got beaten by Scotland. What, what, what do you put it down to, England's uh, Englishness? A, a, yeah, over, overconfidence. It was, and the feeling that the game had been won, which is 
understandable, but I have to say, from the point of a professional sportsman, unforgivable. You know, Darcy Graham got in on the left-hand side for Scotland's second try, the first of yeah. the second half, and he just walked past three English tacklers, including a spectacularly shit try from uh, Ellis Genge, who missed one tackle earlier in it, and then basically fucking welcome to the Istanbul. Here you are. Take $100 in chips and touch them behind. Like, it was dreadful. He just, he didn't look fit, but he also, it was just a completely ineffective attempt at attack. He just allowed this, like, 12-stone, dripping wet, blonde kid to run through his massive ham of a shoulder. Um, because he he thought it would probably wouldn't matter. They were so far ahead. I'm reading Ellis Genge's mind here, unfairly. Well, that's, you know, that's the only conclusion I could draw from that. Scotland then took, they took that momentum though and every chance that they got, they, they, like, they didn't necessarily score off every chance, but they took the chance. They didn't fuck it up. I thought that, um, I, oh, probably my defining uh, summary of, of English rugby is in Nick Popowell's book, which so Poppy played, retired in, what, 94, 95. So more than like 25 years ago. And wrote about the English team that when Dean Richards played, they had six or seven hard men in their pack. And when he didn't play, they maybe won. And I think that when England are on top, there's no team that looks better in the Six Nations. And they... They looked awesome against Scotland in the first half. But when it changes, it was really... I, the, the coverage is very poor on, on Virgin in terms of the picture quality and the sound quality at the beginning of the match. So I, I flipped over to the BBC to watch Ireland-Wales and I, I stayed on it. Um, I found commentary a bit wearing, but um, Martin Johnson and Sam Warburton were two of the talking heads. And they were both brilliant. Like, yeah, they're really good. They're really, really good. Um, like Sam Orbiton is so switched on, you can see why he's such a good captain. But like Jono, Jono knows all the rules. Jono is mad into rugby. Like he's as much enjoyment as you'd see. Like you see pictures of Martin Johnson and like there's a big fight going on. Johnson just has it. Like he's got his one hand is gripping the neck of someone else's jersey. And the other, and the face is just looking into where the fight is. Like he's just delighted. Like he's 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 in his element. Like he was, and he was brilliant at halftime. But also his nouse, like he understanding like how bad tripping was, and actually knowing all the bits and bobs. So they really miss. I don't think there's a good knowledge in English rugby. But what did hit me was that what do you do if a team's defence is predicated on line speed? or on two-speed line speed. So you take the line away. Like, Scotland, Scotland's best rugby is quick ruck ball. And, like, I thought the Scottish tackling in the, in the second half was brilliant. It was all around the legs. They, they got in and they drove around the legs and they just chopped the English guys down. But, like, a lot of the time when Scotland attacked, like, England had them marked. But then if Scotland managed to get the pace up, they could score. And, like, the little chip that the, the scrum half Ali put Price, in, it's yeah. just like, look... There's going to be room in behind there. If they're playing a fast up line, there's going to be room. And like the finish for that was brilliant. And that, that's Townsend coaches, that willingness to offload. 
So Scotland have that in their in their arsenal that they can do it. They they can play a match that goes to to high frequency. And then the other one is with the fast line speed, you go around it. So Scotland call that move off the line out that ended up with the fourth try, with the big the one of the big long pass. Oh with the third yeah, try, Darcy Graham's second try. Where they attacked, they put it back like they they sort of they tempted England up fast. And then they went really wide. But like you need to have a skill set to do it. And then they, they scored a try. Um, Sam Johnson's tried to go 38-31 up. And I was thinking to myself, how is there such a big gap when you're looking from the overhead camera? Because look at the side-on camera, you go, like, it's just a straightforward pass. Like, what's two laggy yeah. doing? You see from the overhead like, camera. Finn Russell is running across two the laggies, pitch. Two laggies shot up. Then they show it from the side-on camera. And Finn Russell's eyes, he never looks at Sam Johnson. He's actually looking at the out-the-back. Like, Johnson's running a decoy line, as far as you're concerned, and you're going, oh, Finn, Finn Russell is And it's a legit pass form. as well. It's not a forward pass. Yeah. But like when yeah. he's on form, he is a joy. And he was on form in the second half. Like the amount of times that he found like grass with his kicks. But that pass... The intercept. The intercept. That pass was just marvellous. Oh. Like he completely sold it with his eyes. He had a smile on his face when he was selling it. And your man, like your man Johnson did brilliantly to finish it off like brilliantly having been marked by like four guys scrambling back and yeah. he still managed True, to dot it down beauty of his sidestep past a great defender in Noel but a lot of England's attack in the first half was just give the ball to Jack Noel Jack Noel got them over the, the, the gain line yeah. and then you sort of see like Biddy doesn't look fit if you if you go back to the match against England and we are talking about the Gilets Jaunes and how much England slowed the game down the Scots didn't let them slow it down and England have this enormous team but if you have an enormous team like you're never going to be really, really fit. You're not going to be as fit as a small, wiry team. So like, the small, wiry team has to take its licks and know that it can go to the deep water. But the risk you take is that you just go too far down. Like you go 31 nil down. And yet Scotland somehow... That, like even the one that Ellis Genge, like the English just didn't have the opportunity to set their line. Yeah. Because Scotland had moved the ball yeah. quickly from the rooks. And that's like when, when when Scotland played well, it was just because it was quick rook quick. And that is Scottish rugby. Like that's just Well, I think it's Scottish rugby plus because they used to be quick rock, quick rock, quick rock ad infinitum. Yeah. And not an awful lot of back play. Now with Finn Russell, uh and you know, they're missing players, missing Hogg, missing Kinghorn, like they're missing good players. Yeah. You know, attacking weapons. Um but they are, I think that's, I, I think Ireland showed a, a, a snippet of that years ago. Do you remember when we were slaughtered by France in the first half? Yeah. Under Eddie O'Sullivan and we came back and we fucked it around and scored 30 points and we looked amazing. But that is, you know, then you, you have, you have people, people. <laughs> One say, why don't you play like that every week? Because we're not fucking 40 points down every week. Yeah, yeah. You know? It's not, the other side also turns off. The other side also turns off. What I think a point that you said there about rugby, depth of rugby knowledge in, in England, and I think in the moment in the English team, I completely agree with you. Um, it's, it's hard to pinpoint why I think that. I think that there's something about the premiership, which I don't know what it is. And it, maybe maybe some of it is just a degree of jaundice. Like I look at Rob Baxter and I just think like, that guy is a rugby, like he's so rugby. You know, he's so much involved. And I see Exeter and I think of Exeter as a really intelligent rugby team. It's yeah, absolutely. Look at that match down in Yeah, 
absolutely drenched in rugby. And I look at Jack Noel and I say, there's a guy who instinctively understands what he should be doing in each part of the pitch. Um, and then, then they have quality players like Elliot Daly, who totally understands what he's supposed to be doing. But I don't think of him as like Mr. Rugby getting involved in all the tackling, wants to be involved in every aspect. And then they have guys like Johnny May, who is like a freak show of a finisher, you know, and who I have a lot of respect for. But you see when a guy goes into a scrum and doesn't know how to fucking scrum, as like a professional rugby player, Generally, he had that ridiculous thing where he put his he put his head up. It's like fucking props arse when he was filling in as a flanker. <laughs> oh, it's unbelievably funny. We're going, mate. You're a pro. Like, have you not been watching rugby and playing? Do you not know what you're supposed to be doing here? That, uh, How the, can you not know that? The England team in 2003 is quite a lot of media guys now, and a few, a few coaches. Um, and Matt Dawson was given out on the BBC feed about Henry Slade getting tackled into touch. And Matt Dawson was the captain of England when they went in the Tour of Hell in yeah. 97. Seven. Yeah, yeah, well remembered. And then, um, no, 98, because he was lying in 97. So it was... Uh, oh, you're right. It was just like... It, the English team that won in 2003 had a number of guys who, who had been captain. Like Delalio had been captain of England. Dawson had been captain of England. Uh, I think Funbus might have... Must have done it. Must have done once it at one stage. Yeah. Johnny Wilkson, I think, became captain of England. He did in his third coming. Um, and also, and obviously they had Jono as well. So, whereas England have probably struggled having Dylan Hartley, like they just can't drop him as, as captain, even when he's, he's playing very poorly. And now they've gone with Faz. But like Faz does everything. But it is, there's, some, there's something missing for them. Well, I want to go back to a point that you made earlier on when you said that when Dean Richards played, uh, England had six hard men in their pack. Yeah. When he didn't play, they only had one. Mm. So that would suggest there's something psychological in the team that like the other guys become hard men because they've got Dino, their leader, yeah. telling them where to oh, go. Yeah, yeah. So like it's like Lord I'm, of Flies. But I'm 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 surprised that then because to me, my instinctive thing would be the reason that happened is that England <clears throat> It's a psychological problem, not a fitness problem. And the same thing with Ireland. Our main problem in this tournament has been psychological. The lack of a target, like you, as you had stated, not really not knowing what, what, what and why we were doing. Wales had a very clear target. Now, I'm not saying all you need to do is set a target, obviously. Yeah. But it seems like, to me, and like for Scotland, it's like we're getting absolutely fucking hammered here. Let's just chuck it around even more than normal. And see, like, it can't get any worse. But they were told at, at halftime to go out and win the second half. And that's what one of the players said afterwards, that Townsend had told him to go out and win the second half. You know, which is absolutely standard <laughs> coaching golf. You know what I mean? That, that is just like, oh, go out and win the second half. It's not all, lads. First hit is the one that counts. Like, that is just from fucking 101. Big, big scrum, you're. <laughs> yeah. They're all big scrums. <laughs> you know? So, uh, well, it, it, England it, missing... England missing Mako and Itoje. Uh, Mako Vunapola is the best loose head in the world by like, a pretty considerable distance as well. He's an outstanding player. I think Itoje showed against Ireland just how good he is. Uh, I think Joe Launchbury has been a... While I like him as a player, and I think he has great depth, he's been a bit of a disappointment to me. I expected him when... He's been playing international rugby for probably seven or eight years now. And I expected him to turn into... And an absolute 
pretty much a legendary like England second row. He's got low, he's got great skills. Uh, he's he's got the right build. You know, he's got this sort of a heavy, broad, bean beam uh, English setup. But he doesn't look like he's taken any leadership mantle in that team, possibly because he's not in it often enough. Uh, Billy is a super player. I don't think that he's a leader by personality. Uh, and I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. No, no, no. I, that I understand. You know, um, Farrell is a leader by personality. Well, Chris Robshaw was the captain of England in the yeah. last World Cup. And they can bring Robshaw back. And it wouldn't be the first. I don't think many people go, oh, we need Robshaw on that team. But I think they do. Yeah, well, I look at Curry and I go, wow, great. No, yeah, you can play Robshaw. Robshaw at six. Yeah, but great. Curry's really good. But the other fellow, Mark Wilson, is going, like, this guy's not as good as Robshaw. No. Like, he's he's sort of. People are now going out of their way to point out how many tackles he makes and going, like, Robshaw used to do that all as well. Like, Robshaw was in Ireland, like, fucking massively underrated. People just used to think he was shit, where he's actually pretty good. He's good at everything. Yeah. And it's one of those sort of things that when you're looking at players and you go, well, yeah, but like, you know, like, is he any good? They say Jamie Heastrup. I don't know if Jamie Heastrup ever really got the perp, the props, the pops, the perps, the props, whatever, that he. Uh, sustained applause um, that he deserved but then when he retired you kind of realised bloked at everything line outs tackles breakdown support lines support lines fitness played 80 minutes didn't have to sub him off did yeah. everything every single match now was he was he outstandingly good at line outs like Peter Romani like Peter Romani had a, Peter Romani was one of the guys who like didn't stink the shop up got a big turnover in the second half Line it went really well on him in the second half. A lot of work, a lot of work from him throughout. You know, and that's um, so like Jamie didn't have that sort of where one element of his game is is that good. So like I'm just making the comparison between a guy who's like particularly good at one area against a guy who's like got an all court game. But Rob Shaw's the plus like he's captain England. He's taken he's taken the shit. So yeah, he'd be a great voice for Eddie Jones to have. But he was Lancaster's captain, and Eddie Jones went out of his way to disassociate himself with Lancaster. Apart from sort of saying, "Oh, there's been a mental weakness in the team since 2015." They're going, "You've been there for four years. This is your mental weakness now. Like it's not oh, I inherited this." Mm. Yeah, like, well, he's not. He's neither a charlatan nor a chancer. He's a good coach, but yeah. he hasn't talks said, a lot of shit. Though he talks like a fucking load of shit, a load of shit. You know, and. Uh, it, it was always going to happen with Eddie Jones in that like his English team started off at a lick and a roar I think that's the phrase hiss and a roar is it? piss and a uh, lurch hiss and a pop prop <laughs> uh, perp and he's <laughs> you know but he was he was just a, we, like we wrote about it years ago now so he was running his mouth so much that when the slump happened like it wasn't just going to be a few people lining up to have a pop at him it was going to be people who don't even normally do it. On the subject of coaches, and I'm not sure what we're like for tape space, I felt really sorry for Joe Schmidt going out of a Six Nations in the manner that he did. He went yeah. out in exactly the same way as Kidney and Eddie had done with probably the worst performance of his Six Nations career. Having won the like, having won three tournaments, having won a Grand Slam, and I, like, I felt really bad for him because I really like Joe Schmidt. I think there's an enormous amount of goodwill towards him. I also think that, like, look, it's Ireland. People are gonna, people are gonna guff about, you know, people are gonna get emotional. They're, we're not, we're not 
a race that's going to see everything on balance immediately after. It's just, it's not in us. Like, we're, we're going to shoot from the hip. Um, but I think there's a huge amount of goodwill to Joe Schmidt. So I think I'll, I'll say something that I said beforehand, just the difference. Like, it really jolted with me how he said, oh, like, don't don't lose. Don't give up on us. Don't give up on this team. And I went, Joe, man, like, what are you thinking? Like, there's no way the Irish rugby uh, fan base are going to give up on the team. Like, mate, we've we've grown up with the team being useless for, like, most of our lives. This is, um, I don't want to be, not useless, that's a poor, that's not the correct, but, like, just not getting results. Like, we, unsuccessful. So just the fact that, like, we're giving out. But I did think it was odd, and I, I go back to, again, the comparison with Gaddy, because Gaddy was finishing up, because you sort of go, oh, like, is Schmidt a lame duck? Like, should he have announced it? And you go, Gatland announced he was going out, and, like, he's never been better. Mm. So it, it doesn't, it, that's not the reason. But when Gaddy was coach of Ireland, he came in having coached Connacht and Weegens not, not too long beforehand. And we're going off to play France and probably like 25 point underdogs. And Gaddy asked for a fax line to be set up. So long ago, most people didn't have email. And for messages of support and goodwill to be faxed in. They were inundated and they posted them all up in the team room. And the guys who played in that match write about it and go, like, it was momentous. Like, it was Connor McGuinness was scrum half at a yeah, blinder it was that brilliant day. first. Yeah. And we got beaten by France because they could bring Philippe Benetton off the bench and we just didn't have anything like And we didn't know how to win in Paris, but we, we played a blinder and it's like it's that bush psychology that Gaddy has. But you're sort of going, ah, Joe, like, if, if you were to go over to Japan and set up an email address and ask for messages of support and a fax line so people could write stuff and draw stuff and send it into you, you'd be inundated. Like, Snapchat. <laughs> yeah, no, I, 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 yeah, I'm, I'm talking same. about the fax line. You need a fax line. <laughs> yeah, you need to just, exactly, go back to fax. Most of the stuff that's happened in the last 20 years with social media is dreadful anyway. <laughs> uh, I, I agree there. I felt dreadful for, uh, I felt dreadful for Joe Schmidt, who's, um, you know, it was it was his last game in the Six Nations as well, uh, and I, like, it was it was it was it was the fact that Gatlin went out in such a high and Joe has gone out in this tournament in such a low was really, uh, I was it was it was really tough on him. You know, he's been a guy who's like when when he took over, we just finished fifth in uh, in the Six Nations in in twenty thirteen. And since then, our lowest finish has been third. We haven't finished outside the top half of the table. In six years, we've won three of the tournaments. Like it's been won a, a Grand Slam and a Grand Slam in you know last played, year. Played New Zealand what three times on four times underneath them, beaten them twice, lost in the last minute, got beaten by what three tries in. But like, give him a game every single yeah. time. Like he's been, he is a marvelously successful coach. Uh, like every coach has a few blind spots. Like as I've said briefly off mic there, Gatlin had a few like fifth place finishes with Wales. Gatlin's been in that Welsh job longer than Schmidt and Kidney together were in the Irish job. Like he's seen a lot of downs as well as a lot of ups. Couldn't be the Southern Hemisphere team for a decade. Yeah. Um, so I did feel very sorry for Joe who, uh, it's it's tough. Like Irish rugby fans, no, no less than Welsh rugby fans can be, very emotional uh, about responding to uh, loss, especially. And um, but you know, I do feel f- that there is 
this that this isn't the big tournament for us this year and and I don't think that you can peak twice in the same year in two different tournaments. I do think that what's different for Gatlin and for Schmidt is that Gaddy is he's, he's still the king because Pivac isn't in the camp whereas Joe's handing over to Farrell. So that handover, how do they do it? Like, I do think Joe's blind spots are his selection. So I, and I thought that when Farrell was appointed, he was a really good appointment as assistant coach because he has a big personality. He's a lot of experience. He's like, he's, he's an ego. So he's, he's able, he's, he's not going to be a shrinking violet and he's not just going to be like a number two or a yes man to Joe Schmidt. Like, so he, Joe, Joe needs a counterpoint. Like he needs mm-hmm. an emotional presence because Joe is, he's such an intellectual sort of coach that like he needs an emotional presence to counterbalance that. And Farrell has to bring that because yeah. Farrell's in the camp and Farrell's like it's Farrell's job. Like once Ireland are gone from the World Cup, whether we win it or whether we get beaten by Samoa and are home before the quarterfinals, uh, to continue on total analysis, it's Farrell's game. I think that there's I think there's a lot to that, you know, in that I didn't think our uh, Draco mentioned it briefly on off the ball today that I, I don't think our line speed is as good as it was in in uh, this time last year and I don't think that our intensity overall has been when I say intensity I mean how physically hard people enter into contact like how quickly they do it and what level what hip height that they go into I don't think that's been as good there are certain times when it's been very good from players Tyke Furlong had some monster clearance against France Omani had one particularly fucking ludicrous torpedo there against Wales underneath the sticks where he just launched. But I think that there is an emotional element to it which Farrell, as a big leader of men, has to bring. Uh, and that's what, that's one of his jobs as a coach. It's not just that he's the defence coach. I think he also has to be the animator-in-chief. I think that there's that's been lacking but I do, again, to repeat myself, I think that it's particularly hard to peak twice and that you have to peak to win the Six Nations. You don't just bumble along and win the Six Nations. No. Vince the Six Nations? Decidedly not. I thought it was pretty good. Uh, no, I'm not joking. I, I, I thought it was, you, did, you didn't like the referee. Oh, I thought it was one of the... Uh, I thought that it was really tough Six Nations. There were games which I didn't see and which I recorded and which I haven't bothered to watch now. Like one of them was Scotland, Italy. You wouldn't hold that against me. But normally in the Six Nations, I've watched every game. And this one, I was just like, oh, not bothered. I am going to give it a not vintage. Where would you mark it out of 10, giving reasons for taking away points like Uncle Gay would have? Um, I'm going to give it six and take away three points because we didn't win it. <laughs> Um, and yeah, the refereeing, the offside line constantly annoys me. Uh, Italy's ineptitude in managing to not win against France annoyed me. Me too. Scotland's ineptitude, even though this would be worse for us in not winning against England, having staged one of the greatest comebacks I've ever seen in my life, um, annoyed me, um, Ireland not really enjoying themselves at all kind of annoyed me, except for maybe the the first 50 minutes against France. 
Um, and I would have liked to have seen more from <clears throat> Jordan Larmer. I would have liked to see him picked more. I would have liked to see Ty Byrne picked more. And I would have liked to have seen uh, John Cooney picked more. Yeah. Uh, but... Nonetheless. So we might be down like minus two. <laughs> no, no, no. They're not. All, they're not. All, they're not all equated to one point. They're equated to my my four yeah. uh, deducted points from the whole thing. Yeah, it's I hard felt, to argue with that. I, I absolutely so. agree. With that. I would say, I would add though that um, France were a real disappointment once again. I felt that his, um, his selection of Willemse is like a big minus one point. Um. Well, I appreciate Lambie's like absolutely like a 1950s American go get him attitude. Like that fella is a fucking midget for a second row. <laughs> you know, I just don't think that makes any sense. Yeah. I like Entomac playing and I like Penno playing because I remember their old fellas. Um, so that's that's back up one. So he's only down one. Um, I thought Gregor Townsend, Scotland losing two of their home games out of three and their only win coming against Italy. Uh, and then getting beaten with a bonus point by France away. Like Scotland has been a disappointing one for Scotland. I always have a bit of a soft spot for the Scots. It's down one. Uh, like we are... I, I felt that our loss against England, uh, which deflated our entire campaign, was a minus one. I felt our loss against uh, Wales was... Her- horrific that was by reason of its sort of firstly in in uh, in discipline secondly just being made uh coerced into that coronation of wales that was that was a real low i also felt that wales played a very hard on the eye brand of rugby uh that wasn't enjoyable to watch england played very easy on the eye but have a real soft mental underbelly. That doesn't work. Underbrain. <laughs> um, so I think that there's going to be a lot of dissatisfaction in every camp, bar Wales, who might... I don't think Wales will be sated. I think they will look to the next uh, to the next target that they have. Uh, and... You know, I take my hand off to Gatland and, and to Sean Edwards as well, who I think has been a huge part of that success. Any final thoughts from you? I like the Welsh team. I like their, I like their heart. Uh, I like the fact that they were scrappers. Lots of grit, yeah. Uh, I like the fact that England didn't win the championship for <laughs> whatever. I still have whatever hang-up I still have. I was disappointed for Joe Schmidt to go out the way that he did. Um... I thought I sort of despair a bit for French rugby, while at the same stage, just looking at the number of good players they have, and thinking to myself, "Oh, like that's, at some stage they'll appoint someone who can coach them." They'll appoint a New Zealander who can speak French. Yeah, and like they will be back because there's just so many options. Yeah, but it's difficult. But it's yeah, but we've gone through so, mm. um, and I was disappointed in the Italians. Uh, I thought Scotland played some great rugby. Uh, I got a huge kick out of Finn Russell. I thought he was marvellous. Um, so, I don't know, somewhere between vintage and non-vintage, really. <laughs> I love the Six Nations. It was an adequate Six Nations. <laughs> Thunder's in there. 
that'll knock the wind out of him. Someone needs to stop him. Aside from the Ireland's disappointing uh, senior Six Nations, the under-20s did complete a Grand Slam on Friday in Colwyn Bay. You were there. Yeah, I was. Uh, it was the absolute opposite of disappointing. It was a thrilling game, and I was really delighted for them. Colwyn Bay is a lovely little, uh, little stadium and sporting enclave there. Uh, it's the most brightly lit pitch in the Northern Hemisphere. They've got a rank of uh, floodlights going all the way down the side of the pitch. Um, and it, they they sort of dug a hole for themselves somewhat, the team. But they halfway dug up with a very late first half try. A beautiful break, absolutely wing-heeled from uh, Angus Kernahan, who managed to link it. There was a breakdown. Scott Penny carried it up down the left took a t- tackle and gave a pass at the same time to Ren, who stepped in hard off his left foot and got in behind the sticks. It was a super try. Um, but w- some of the stuff I was happiest for was they missed their, probably their two of their three or some of their most influential players were missing. Harry Byrne and Craig Casey were both late dropouts. I think on the day they were, they'd done fitness tests. They were yeah, going to play. The 10 and the 9. Yeah, and then they dropped out you know, on the day of the game. So two lads stepped in, Cormac Foley and Ben Healy. Um, you know, and the team it sounds hackneyed, but the team rallied around them. Uh, those lads, you know, came in, put in a pretty, pretty decent show. But other members of the team took up the slack. French, the centre, had a couple of big line breaks. Ireland were denied and two lovely tries. Hands. Lovely hands. Ireland were denied two very, very close TMO decisions in the first half. Yeah. Uh, and it seemed at that stage, oh, like this is going to go against us. We're not getting the calls. But, you know, they took the game into their own hands by taking their chances. I was particularly happy for the subsequent half. Colin Riley, I think his name is. Uh, yeah, yeah. Ter- like third choice scrum half in, in under 20s you know he got a chance <laughs> and I only saw I only saw I was on my way back from the Jacks but I just saw him scamper off and I'm going he's got a score now Dylan Tierney Martin continued his extremely good try scoring uh, rate he scored this is his fifth try in, in the in the championship yeah. the hooker and I was looking at that again and I was going this looks odd what had happened what had happened was the ball had never got to deck it was a line-out maul, which collapsed, but the ball was clearly playable, but it never got to deck. Because it was a collapsed maul and not a ruck, it wasn't he didn't, a tackle. It wasn't a tackle, and he didn't have to be the last man, as you have to be in a ruck now to pick and go. You can't pick off your back foot when you're halfway through a ruck anymore. But because it wasn't a ruck, it was a collapsed maul, he could just pick from the front, essentially where he was, and go. Now, either he knew that or he didn't know that, but he did it anyway. And again, he zipped in very neatly. I thought... The ref was really good because he was mic'd up. They're all mic'd up, but you could hear him, you know, because there's no noise in Common Bay compared to the Millennium Stadium. So you can hear him really well on the broadcast. And uh, he had a great game. Yeah. Really clear about, you know, the reason he was given decisions and what he wanted. And it was a really enjoyable game to watch. I'd echo all the same stuff. I, I was really impressed with um, how the squad reacted to losing two of their best players in the, particularly in you know pivotal positions in the nine and the ten I thought that Wales marshaled Hodnett very well the number eight who's a big yeah, carrier for us yeah. and Ireland just didn't get knocked off their stride um, I 
I've been in a coaching course, uh, you know, recently enough where McNamara spoke and spoke very well. He's a teacher. He's taught in Clongos. He's one of these guys who became a teacher because he wanted to coach rugby. Um, and last season was his first season in the 20s and they were dreadful. They were dreadful in the Six Nations and they were even worse in the World Cup. And normally you get one of those tournaments right. And I was, and they'd poorly with them. And I was like, ooch, don't know what's going on here. Just bring back Huddock. But this season, whatever changes he made to his coaching were massively beneficial because the team had a lot of harsh, they played good rugby, they had a lot of awareness. I was, the, the skill level of the Irish team was very good. Um, I'm absolutely fixated on the number of births that there are in each of those years. Mm. So 99, because I looked it up the other night, is it's a bit of a jump from like the low of 95. And then there's about the same, I think it's about 55,000 next year. It's about the same the following year. And then it goes up by 5,000. So it has gone up from 5,000 from the low. And then it goes up by another 5,000 in two years' time. And then it goes up to 70,000, right? So, like, 1980, 1979 were the highest years for Irish births. And that's when we had... Draco. The golden generation. Yeah, That's Pauly. when we had, like, a, a back row of Dave Wallace and Ferris and Heaslip and Shawnee. Like, we had four of those books, four yeah. of those athletic freaks. But we also had... And a, we had Darcy and we had Paulie and yeah. we had Draco. Yeah. Uh, because when you've got more births, you have more opportunity to have good players. So... Get get breed in Ireland. <laughs> well, Ireland has been breeding. Like, there's more guys coming on stream. But I, I, in a weekend where the senior team had a shocker, you were you did have to remember that you've got three teams in the quarterfinals of the Heineken Cup. You've got Connacht playing knockout rugby, and you've got the under twenties winning the Grand Slam. So. Irish rugby's doing a lot of stuff right. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I, I, you made some really good points. I also think, obviously, their original captain, Hawkshaw, was missing as yeah. well. Uh, and, you know, Wales did marshal Hodnett really well. Uh, he's been a super player from boy. You know, that guy still, he never went missing. No, he like, kept, they took kept him on off looking. after 71 minutes and he was tired, but like, he was like, oh, why do I have to come off? You know, kept looking for the ball. Kept looking for the ball. The other thing I'd say is that Welsh team had some serious players, and they had an open side who was like a limpet. They also had Yoin Evans' kid, who was like a pro, <laughs> the fullback. And they brought on that guy Combier, who was oh uh, yeah, lovely ballast, electric great pace. Yeah, so it was a really exciting game to watch. There was quality, a lot of quality in it. There was it was stop start. There was there was a degree in which I came out and I was saying to somebody like, oh, there's something I enjoy so much about under 20s and that it's still relatable to rugby as like essentially yeah, they how, mis- they make mistakes. how I played it you know they make mistakes and you're going no that's just what guys do when they play like yeah. you, don't, you don't see the pros doing it because like they're the best yeah um, and then our pros went out just made a mistake fest on, on Saturday but it was a really enjoyable game to be at and huge credit should go to the guys who've you know, I think that they had a more extended time together and played more games before going into the Six Nations, yeah, is my played understanding. Tom, played Shannon. And played some Leinster and Munster development sites. Yeah. Um, but they've been able to take these, you know, big losses of personnel, key personnel in their stride. They've gone, their leader, they've leaders like in every row, you know, they, they've got Witcherly, they, you don't have to go through the names. Yeah. But like, 
leaders in, in every row of the pack and they've got some good intelligent players in the backs and like uh, contrasting to some of the stuff we were talking about earlier on about England they've turned around losing positions in what certainly the England and Wales game and I'm not sure about the French game but they were losing to the games and yeah. came out of them yeah so they they have uh, they have a belief in themselves and a belief in their teammates as well and uh, seemingly a real you can sort of tell or not tell they seem to really like each other and be you know be very pally. I think that's something that comes with success. And I think that players who have had success at under 20s go on to be successful players. They're seen with a, uh, they're seen as success. Like the guys Confidence. who, 2012 team and uh, 2007, um, the 2007 Grand Slam winning team, the last Grand Slam yeah. winning team. And then the, the 2016 World Cup finalists. Yeah, Those players have confidence that they can compete with their peers international peers and beat them and I'm very hopeful that, that a lot of internationals and a lot of good rugby players will come from this but there's also the point that some players may not go on to be pros but they will have won a fucking grand slam for Ireland there's a point that Brent Pope made at the start of the program on Friday um, and he was that he was concerned about the transition from um, under 20s to full internationals that if it was New Zealand, these lads would just be thrown in straight away. Whereas someone like Max Deegan, uh, you know, wasn't, you know, he would have gone on a tour. Um, it seemed to me a kind of like a bit pie in the sky this comment. Max yeah. Deegan plays loads for Leinster. Yeah. And also what tour was he supposed to go on where there was a free Irish cap going? Yeah, I, I think that's, like Pope, he's a very nice fella. And uh, like Scott Penny has already played for Leinster amongst other things. But it's much harder to get into, well, it's harder to get into a provincial academy than it is to get into an Irish 20 settle, in my opinion. That's that's not just like a buy in the sky opinion, that's based on... Yeah, there's, there's fewer numbers. Available. There's fewer numbers available, you know? Academy is three years, and typically guys do development, so there's, there's four. Yeah. And each 20, there's a 20s team each year. Yeah. So from, like, you're not going to have 80 blokes over that four years in academies. Yeah. And some guys, and just like the pros is a much higher standard mm. than the 20s. You know? And like there's far less Irish 20-year-olds who are as physically developed as some of the um, like Islander. Oh yeah, as James Lowe has said himself, yeah. he sees guys coming out and he doesn't know whether they're 25 or 18 and it turns out they're 12. Staggeration there. But uh, no, I think that's, I, I, I wouldn't agree with Pope there. I think... Certainly, uh, from closest and where we are, I think the Leinster setup does a really good job in getting players into the into the sub academy first, into the academy, and then get them playing relatively quickly. Mm. Um, like Max Egan has played a lot of rugby. Like saying that Max isn't progressing to where he should be is like uh, Deegan's playing loads. You know, Scott Penny, who is still a nineteen-year-old, has already played, started four senior games for Lancer in his first year in the he academy. He plays most of them. He finishes matches yeah. after 30 minutes. You know, so um, I just think Pope is probably probably just wrong there, in my opinion. Yeah. It's just an opinion. Um, and it's also worth bearing in mind that Leinster generally have been able to field a 13 out of 15 Leinster produced squad yeah, and, and, have and, won and, their, and have won their division with like a month and a half to go. Another thing I'd, I'd say about the under-20s progressing is that 
it's a great opportunity for coaches in other provinces uh, and especially academy coaches to look at what they can do to strengthen their own academy. You know, that you're like, for example, I, I've used it before, but the example of Nick Timothy, who is Max Deegan's predecessor in Leinster in Irish schools, Leinster under 20s, and Irish under 20s is number eight, didn't get picked up by the Leinster Academy after doing a year in a sub academy. Ulster came in and have got great, they've had a huge reward from Deegan. He's been a super player for them. Sorry, from Timothy. He's been a super player for them. So there may be players who are available who don't necessarily, from this very successful under 20s team, who don't necessarily get picked up by their own home provinces academy, who, are want, who want to be pros. And because they've had this level of success, because they know what it takes to succeed, that's a good opportunity for other provinces and other provincial academies to look at them and go, we can make something of this player. And maybe maybe not even, like, I think one of the guys, Gaffney, I was a big fan of Kieran Gaffney. He's had he to retire, unfortunately. And he had to retire because he had a dreadful injury. Like, I can't remember, it was a jaw or ankle? Can't remember. He got a dreadful injury, but it was... I really like to see him play Pro 14 rugby for for one of the Italian teams because you go, it's better that an Irish guy plays in one of those slots than some generic South African guy. It's better for Irish rugby. Yeah. Like just, I mean, is, is it better full stop? Eh, it's it's the same. But it's better from Irish perspective that there's professional slots and those, a tight burn playing in the Scarlets. Yeah, McKinley. Yeah, well, McKinley um, didn't play for him. But, you, you know, but guys, guys that are going to be able to come sorry, back into the yeah, Irish that's a good system... Point. Um, Jeez, like it's great for McKinley to go yeah. over and play rugby. You know, so it's not that it's, it's not a good thing, but mm. for for guys to be able to go over somewhere, become pros, like go, go to Edinburgh, go to Treviso, go to whatever, Dragons, um, and there is an opportunity to slap back in. Yeah. Well, congrats to them anyway. <laughs>